Hello and welcome to Don't Panic Yet. I'm Simon Monsor and my guest is Anita Diamond. One of the things I'm hoping to highlight in future episodes of this show is this young generation, or younger than me at least, of thoughtful and compassionate people who work to understand the causes of many of the world's problems, both existing and impending, and actively try to implement possible solutions. Anita is one of those inspiring folks. She saw how modern democracy could be fixed or enhanced to greater represent the needs of the population. And so at the age of 25, and again at 27, she ran for a seat in the Queensland Parliament and received a not insignificant number of votes. In this conversation, we talk about democracy and governance, which inevitably leads us to touch on related topics of sustainability and the role of technology, big data, and causes for optimism. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anita Diamond. Anita, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you have an interesting political history. The thing that caught my attention was the fact that you had run for state Yep. The state election. Queensland. Queensland yep. state election. Mm -hmm. And that was a few years ago now. Mm -hmm. And you ran with associated with a group called People Decide. People Decide were effectively a group that were, uh, we weren't a party formalised, but we had um, a number of us who were running as independents in that state election. Um, so there was four of us, I think, at the time. And the idea was we wanted to create uh, an opportunity for people to be aware that there are other forms of democracy that you could have running in a country like Australia where it's not... So we have a, a representative democracy here where you elect uh, an MP to um, sit in the member of, as a member of parliament and vote on bills according to whatever their particular party um, ethics are or values. Um, but... There are other things like participatory democracy where the, the citizens actually get to have a say and participate in the democracy by actually voting on laws directly themselves. Um, and they could use like a representative who would be the representative for that electorate to pass the vote on um, when they sit in parliament. So essentially that's what we wanted to do is allow for people to actually directly vote on laws um, Ah, so that's the key difference. Yes. Right. Um, so you're not you're not just voting like regularly going as we do, you know, at an election to just vote for a, a party and then that's it. And I just feel that there's a disconnect that we don't really know. Well, most people don't know what goes on day to day in Parliament and we don't understand, you know, like what bill is being passed today or what bill is going to be tabled. Um, just to even have that citizen awareness and involvement in, in democracy is, I think, lacking I guess the, the closest thing that would be to it was the referendums that we have where people get to vote on things like the marriage equality bill. Um, it would be something like that, but, you know, on a more regular basis. Um, so we wanted to have um, a piece of software that people could use to look at the bills that come through every day and actually be able to read and get some information on what this bill is and then put a vote through on that. And it would line up with the Australian um, electoral roll. So, um, for instance, in my electorate, I was representing the people of Maywa. And in that electorate, I would pass on. So everyone in who's registered in Maywa would be registered on this platform online to be able to view the bills and read what is being tabled, say, the next day that I would be in parliament. And the idea would be that I would take those votes that the people of my electorate have um, read and voted on. It wouldn't be compulsory. It would just be for people who want to be, you know, participate and involve. But 
I would be their representative. So it wouldn't be my vote. I would just be simply acting in accordance with the people of my electorate. That's a pretty radical change from the norm. Did you have any sense of how many people found that idea even interesting or were supportive of it? Well, in my election in the last uh, time that I ran, which was in the 2017 Queensland state election, I got 888 votes in total. So I guess 888 people of the Maywa electorate who did vote, vote voted directly for me. Um, right. I guess, you know, I, it's hard to say whether there were more people who just simply weren't aware of the fact that I was running who might have actually yeah. been interested. But out of the people who did find out about me, I'm sure, yeah, you know, they would have been. I did door knocking as part of my campaigning uh, simply because there was no other really option for me to, to <laughs> without having a huge, you know, uh, fund to run off as a, a, you know, like most political candidates do. And how, well, how do people react when you present this kind of an idea to them to say, you know, yeah. you're going to vote <laughs> on a whole bunch of issues yourself? yeah. yeah. It, it's very radical, um, although it's not too radical when you think that that's essentially the nature of how politics was meant to be when the Greeks invented the concept of a democracy. It was actually ha- meant to have more citizen involvement. There wasn't really this this very disconnected thing that we have now where you just have these parties that run off their own kind of agendas and get funded by other political donors, and we all know that you know, it's it's not very honest or transparent. There's no accountability. And I think what really appealed to people when I said that it would be direct democracy, that you would be voting and I would be your representative and I would simply be there almost just as your proxy vote, really, um, that accountability, that sort of transparency and saying I'm not here to run under any other agenda other than to represent your vote, it so was it's, it's like a hack of the current system. <laughs> I uh, ideally, the concept itself, if you were building it from scratch, yeah. you would work to, a uh, up a whole different system. Yeah, it's yeah. a way to take down kind of the, the antiquated system that we seem to have now that doesn't really, well, it doesn't really make sense, I feel, um, to what people would be wanting today, you know, that there's more involvement in politics and actually, like, feeling that your vote actually matters. Um, this would make it feel like it had value, if you knew that what you actually voted on was counted and you could see the result of that by going, I voted on this and my representative actually passed on that vote that I, you know, so say if you say yes, that you would agree to say mar- the marriage equality bill, it was that bill that I actually represented be like, yeah, okay, all the people who voted yes on that, I actually contractually, because the idea too is that I'd be contracted um, by law to, to vote with the people. So I couldn't just decide oh, well, actually, I don't really agree with this, so I'm not going to vote on it. It would have to be whatever it is that the people of my electorate want. Even if, you know, maybe I didn't necessarily personally agree, it wasn't meant to be about my personal agenda. So it's a different approach. What is, what, if you had to pin down one particular problem, and I know there are many, that epitomises the current state of governance, what would that be? I think, for me, one of the biggest problems I see is that and really this applies to all governments, I feel it's not, you know, just in Australia, but um, the fact that governments are very uh, easily swayed by lobby groups or particular, um, you know, groups who have money basically who are, I guess, you know, giving corporate donations and things like that. That The I revolving door of, between parliament and business. Yeah. That, right. Yeah. It's meant to be about the will of the people and the citizens and, you know, representing their 
it is. It's a representative democracy. That is what we're supposed to have. But I feel like, you know, the thoughts and feelings of the people in that um, democracy aren't being represented, mm. especially if there's, like, all this lobbying going on and there's no direct correlation between what the people actually want and then what these big, big, you know, corporations want. So we're talking about elections and you've gotten involved in trying to do things a different way. Just stepping back a bit, what do you think is the most urgent thing that more people should be paying attention to? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> there are there are a lot of pressing issues at the moment, but... Um, You're only allowed one. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this makes it really difficult. This is it, yeah. You know, actually, I often try and think about what is the one thing that connects really everything up because I think you can you can house a lot of issues under the same umbrella even though they might individually be different and I think a lot of things do connect up to being housed under a term that I came across which was structural violence so the idea of structural violence is that you have a system in place which is forms the core structure of that society or country parts of the system literally disable people from being able to do things that they might have ordinarily been able to do if the system wasn't in place to prevent them from doing it. Or... Sort of arbitrary limits on autonomy. Yeah. Um, Or even just, you know, classism, like the very fact that people are trapped by what opportunities they are able to access because of lack of money or the ability to be, you know, involved in something because they never got the opportunity because the thing that would have given them the opportunity was not there because the system basically prevented them from doing it. Uh, and it's not not just people. I would, I would apply the environment to this because, once again, it's a form of structural violence. What we do to this planet is because of, I see, corporations and how they operate and they being the ones that have the major decisions at the end of the day with how uh, waste is disposed, how, you know, um, we run our fuel industry and why the fuel, fossil fuel industry is even still around... It all goes back to the corporations that are under it who operate under this system, which is called capitalism. But, I mean, I could just say capitalism, but I feel it's it's the structure of how capitalism operates. But corporations are awesome, aren't they? I'm able to make this podcast because the things that I am using to do it and, and the way of distributing it um, have been formed and created by corporations. Is that right or wrong? I mean, that's true. A lot, a lot of the time that's, you know, what a lot of people say to me when I say, when I question, um, you know, the benefits of capitalism. And I, there are benefits. It's just I think they come with their inherent, um, I guess, darker sides to them. Everything. Capitalism offers the opportunity, yes, for people to be innovative or create. Um, but I wouldn't say that they wouldn't have been able to do it without capitalism. It's just that... Capitalism rewards particular ruthless business behaviour. So it all comes with opportunity. Once again, the only things that would have been invented would only have got there because the person who came up with that invention had the opportunity to even do it in the first place. And often it's money. It's money that creates money, that creates money, that creates... It's like you have to have that capital to begin with. And if you don't, that whole kind of, I think, 
utopian story that I, I think is specifically like quite an American dream is the idea of you have the poor person who's gone from rags to riches and, you know, it's like anyone, anyone can achieve greatness. And I, I just think that's that's a bit of a false story because how often do you really see that happen? Or is it really mainly because that poor person gave up something along the way in order to get there where they were. Um, they sacrificed maybe their freedoms to get there. They might have decided that they had to um, work in these really awful, grueling jobs that sucked their soul away. That There is such a thing as, like, angel investors and things. So, yes, people can be nice and just give um, someone money in order to start up a business. But once again, they've got to see something in it for them um, and I just think, yeah, it's 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 a it's like a vicious cycle. It's hard to point the finger at where it went wrong to begin with. But there's a, cu- a couple of aspects of it that really stand out to me. One is the fact that that most of the things, like most of the technology that makes this work, was not formed by private corporations or invented by private corporations. Yeah, it was all publicly funded, as is the internet. And the other thing is, yes, you do have companies innovating, but it seems to be the bigger and more powerful a company gets, the less it actually does innovate. And it's that whole idea as well as kind of monopolising. You see these mammoth corporations, these tech giants emerging now where you have Google, Amazon being at the top and Apple and it's like where are all the other players? There were other people who were trying to do similar things to what they did but they just stole their ideas or um, basically swallowed them up as part of the whole because they'd buy them out because they had more money and then you see this happening with these little apps that start off and then they get bought out by Facebook, you know, like WhatsApp started off as an independent thing and then got bought by Facebook. So, so is it possible for a big, a big organisation to actually maintain that level of innovation, creativity, that, that forward-moving energy? It's a, it's a difficult question because there are some things mm. in the modern world, the world we're used to, that simply require big infrastructure, big groups to manage that, particularly these days with internet infrastructure. Mm. It's not something that a small startup can, <laughs> can do. It's, it requires massive resources. It goes back to the structural violence. It's like it, it's difficult for like a small organisation to do that because they have to be part of the game and the part of the game is you have to you have to be big, you have to get on the same platform that everybody else is on. So it's like, once again, how do you... It's like the race got started and you have to catch up. That's where it's, it's against you. Um, and that's the major problem because how is it then that it's fair? What would make it fair? If you if you are able to make a few adjustments, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's easy to medium criticize size, medium sized ones. Like where would you start? I think we're already starting to to see the the issues and and where the faults are and try and fix those um, issues with opportunity. I think so. Equal opportunity trying to be given to more people who ordinarily wouldn't have had it. So, um, I guess that awareness of groups who couldn't participate in things like minorities and uh, women being like uh, getting more fairer pay, very sort of small token gestures. But I see it better than nothing. At least we are aware that those issues are there and that, you know, certain people just didn't get opportunities. I suppose like there's more awareness of that now. So I see that as being perhaps a way of fixing it. It's just simply being aware of our blind spots, being aware of where is it that, you know, we're just ignoring, um, certain issues or things that just should have been given light but weren't because 
major corporations just took over and decided how things should run and be operated. I really like the idea of nonprofits. I think like at least that's a start. It's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's better than running simply on the motive of we've got to have a certain profit margin met and that's all that matters, you know, and therefore things do get sacrificed and people's rights or the the right, responsibility of that organisation to the community or the environment gets ignored because it's the profit. It's the profit that's the goal and it doesn't really matter what, what comes along the way in the, in the path, they'll just knock it out. It's the rules of the game yes. that are wrong. Yes. See, I don't, I don't mind competition. I love competition. I think it's human nature, yeah. We, we, we have been competitive creatures, so I don't think that's the problem. It's the way in which we create the environment for that competition. That's the key. And if, and if you're playing a game and there is a prize at the end, mm. that's kind of all you need. Yeah, and, and really, once people realise it is a game, I think half the time, you know, you've got people playing this game who don't even know they're in it. I think half the reason that I think capitalism works and the advantage of the 1% who, who do succeed is because they know that there's a huge ignorance amongst the population about what's really going on, and that ignorance is advantageous to them. Oh, totally. The last thing that people in power want is a fully informed public. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, it's that's, dangerous. Exactly, and that's why I see, you know, um, when, I, when I come along with my idea of having an informed public who vote on things directly... Um, I think that's, you know, probably quite a big threat to to the powers that be, but they probably realise that people are not informed enough to even be aware that such a system could be in place, therefore it'll never happen. So, Yes. Yeah. Did you find that? Did you find that you weren't being paid much attention to because, because people were saying, who is going to vote for someone who yeah. wants them to roll up every week and fill out lots of questionnaires about what, what rules should be and what they shouldn't be and reading yeah. legislation? No one's yeah. going to go for that. Yeah. I think that's what they thought, yes. It's yeah. it's almost like we need to do away with elections altogether and democracy while we're at it because it's it's just too well, corruptible. At least, <laughs> at least this form, yeah, yeah, it's too corruptible. We're, we're too, I think we're too comfortable. Everyone's kind of complacent and happy with just going along with what we've always done. Ah, right, yes, we need an asteroid on the way or something <laughs> like that. Or at least huge economic downturn. I mean, maybe that's what we're entering into. Um, when there's usually, and that has happened in history, I think you can track where major historical sort of movements have happened of change is usually coincided when there's a big, you know, economic disruption. That's true, although there's usually a big war in between. Yes, but we might be entering into that too, so... <laughs> We need a, a world government to restrict our behaviours. It's, it's funny. Um, I've had, you know, philosophical arguments with people about the concept of um, dictatorship and whether that's right or wrong. And obviously, you know, a lot of free thinking Western countries don't ever want a dictatorship in place. We always say we want freedom and we want our rights and democracy to be in place. Um, and dictatorship obviously has its problems. But what if we had such a thing as a benevolent dictatorship? Uh, which almost sounds like a paradox. Like how, how can you do something, dictate people for the good? Oh, I don't think it's a paradox. I just think it's absolutely impossible to manufacture. Yeah. I mean, it boggles the mind trying to go, how do, we make, <laughs> how do we make a benevolent dictatorship? Because that would be incredibly efficient and ultimately it'll probably be a computer. I was just thinking, you know, um, I was going to interject. <laughs> a lot of people say, let's do it with technology. Um, but I honestly don't. I, as someone who works in tech, um, I, I just, I don't like the idea of jumping to technology as being the solution for something like that, where you have a machine making decisions on that level, because 
it's not there. Somebody has to program it. And if it's at the stage we're at now, um, the thoughts and values have got to come from a human programming that machine. So who is making that decision to program that and who decides whether that's, you know, the best optimal use of that machine? Okay, so technology, great topic, big topic. But let's play this game. What about technology are you most fearful of and what are you most excited about and optimistic about, if any? I, um, there's so many things with technology. I mean, yeah, it's a huge, huge topic. I, I guess I actually I don't have fears of the technology itself. Um, however, it's how it's used. And it goes back to the age old, you know, question of like the atom bombs invention, the, you know, that it's what interests are behind that te technology, who is designing it, who's getting paid, why is that corporation? Once again, it goes back to corporations. If there's a corporation in charge, that's what I fear. It's like, what are they going to use that technology for? And as we see right now, there's big you know, tech giants that are in control of majority of the technology that we use today. And that scares me because you get just you know, a mammoth group operating something and having the control over everything and the integration of all those devices and you know, it's it's all connected. So the flow of that data just goes everywhere. You know, you can't singular... The centralization, I think, is kind of a concern too, the centralization of um, data and how it's stored and how it's used. It just goes back to the who is who who is doing it? What, what do they gain? They always gain something. Yeah, my biggest problem is the asymmetry of the data flow. The data is valuable. Yeah. Data is awesome. <laughs> it's, it's gold. That's why they call it, really, it data mining. You it, know. it is, but it, it yeah. could be good for everybody. Yes. Um, but it's it's a it's just it's a one way street at the moment. We get free access to, you know, you know apps. You, you have to question why is it free? Why is it free? There's nothing. Nothing comes for free without there being some sort of trade off. But this raises this the big question with these big companies with massive data. Does it simply require a top-down approach of control? Like it, this is a question that goes beyond technology as well. This is a, a timeless philosophical question, yeah. really. Yeah. You know, top-down control or bottom-up mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, it just seems obvious to me that there should simply be laws. Yes. And it's it's also it's a place where the market, letting the market decide yeah. what these companies can do with our data. Mm -hmm. I just can't see that working at all. Um, we we haven't caught up is what I like to say. I feel like technology has just run right, right ahead with their set of ideas and, you know, efficient ways of operating and uh, government and the people have sort of been left behind and sitting there going, oh, wait, we might, we might need to check what they're doing. They've kind of gone ahead and done this thing now that we didn't even realise. I think it's just basically like, laws and governance have just not caught up with technology and they they need to catch up they need to realize they need to be one step ahead they need to be thinking about what is facebook what is google going to do next um because they're they're already thinking it they're already planning what they're going to do next um and how they're going to become more you know prolific and and invasive and <laughs> storing your data and doing things with it and they've already made that decision really and it's like 
you can't do it as an afterthought. You can't see what happens and then go, oh, maybe now we'll try and restrict that because it's already happened. And the thing with data is it stays around forever. I, I actually see it as a bit of a chicken and an egg issue because it's like, well, what should have come first? I mean, um, it's almost maybe too late. I was just wondering that because now you have like big tech companies, they're getting into everything. They're getting into transport, into banking. You can do all your banking with these same companies now that sell you like little video games and things. Um, Is it, have they just got their claws in too deep? That's a negative way of putting it, but into our lives that we can't just sort of opt out. What can we do? That's it. We can't opt out. Yeah. I don't know if we can opt out. Um, everything's so integrated as well is the thing, you know. It's not like everything's happening in isolation. You can't say, well, maybe I'll just stop using Facebook today or maybe I'll just stop using that banking app. And there's a lot to be gained from, you know, using it. I think if it was done in a in a way that was transparent and open about what they're doing, if they actually released their privacy policies, you know, before they start saying, we're making an update to the privacy policy today. Well, actually, no, before you make that update, can you let us know what you plan to do? Maybe have a voting system in place from your users. I mean, this has been talked about already by people within the tech sphere who work in um, in ethics and things, and they've come up with great ideas saying, look, we could actually institute this in a way that's fair and have a bit more legislation around it, especially with AI and stuff that there's no, like, very little legislation with that stuff. And it's... It's pretty scary because if you don't legislate that, um, you know, particularly with AI, people's data is going to be in, used in ways that you know is 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 very very invasive. My reading of it is we have more uh, laws about how we use outer space mm. than we do about artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's saying something. Yes, yeah, it's saying something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are big things we're talking about and sometimes I wonder if anyone's listening. Like how do you – I'll be blunt. How do you fit into the world when you're thinking about these kinds of things all the time? It's actually really difficult to be able to talk about these kinds of topics with your average person because, yeah, a lot of people, to be quite frank, don't really think about it. Um whether that's because they've just never had the opportunity to discuss these kinds of topics or they've not come across them or they're simply just not concerned. Um, But the fact is that actually this affects everyone. Like the stuff we're talking about is the very ways in which we live and the way that our lives are kind of, you know, dictated in some form. Um, So it's kind of sad if people can't... um, think about these things. But what I discovered is that it, it's certainly a way of thinking that, you know, it's systems thinking. And I think there's also a bit of a, again, goes back to my earlier point of uh, the ignorant population being convenient for the powers that be. And I think this comes back to it that if people don't talk about it or people are just simply uninformed, um, it's convenient for them because then they don't question why is the system the way the, it is? How am I being disadvantaged or benefited from it? Um, So I think like in a way people have a responsibility to be informed to at least try and engage on these topics because ultimately their lives are being affected. And perhaps if they if they realize just how much their lives are being affected by this sort of stuff, then maybe they would pay more attention to it. Does it ever get you down? Does it do you ever throw your hands up in the air and go, screw it, I'm just 
going to go surfing for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I think it's human to do that. So, yeah, there are times where I'm like that. Um, there are times I just, you know, have to throw my hands up in the air. But it's not with a sort of disdain or feeling like it's pointless and none of it matters, although there are those moments. But mostly um, it's just that I think in order to have some sanity, you kind of have to put this stuff on the back burner and go, okay, I am concerned about these things, but for today I'm just going to focus on getting up and making my tea and striking my cat and, <laughs> I don't know, like going out to work and, and listening to my podcast or my music uh, because ultimately you can't sit there worrying and, and getting paranoid by this stuff because um, it doesn't really do you any good. But a healthy way to do it would be to be optimistic and think, well, what can I do to help live in a way or participate in this world in a way that I think makes sense and that I might be able to improve? So if I am thinking about this stuff, how can I use what I'm thinking to help improve the situation? So maybe I can do something and that's where... I guess I got involved in politics. Are you still interested in getting into politics? Yeah, I am. Um, I would just probably like to do things differently, um, maybe not run as part of the same group, maybe try to phrase it differently or um, re rethink the platform to be more kind of straightforward and clear. It is a bit convoluted and difficult to understand at first. How does it work? And I think half the reason why a lot of people might not have been immediately uh, attracted to it is because it's just too complicated. Um, and really, at the end of the day, people want something simple and clear that they can understand when they vote. Um, so thinking about a way to make it more straightforward. Yeah, and ultimately, that's it. Like, we, we need to make these things a bit more clearer and easier to understand so that they're not overwhelming. And I think half the reason it's just sheer ex exhaustion. I mean, I get it. It's like it, everything is so overwhelming. And, and I think you're probably going to see more and more people getting very depressed, very apathetic, uh, not feeling like they can do anything because when things become too overwhelming, that's how we react. We just throw our hands up and retreat and um, don't want to be involved, don't want to you know, uh, feel like it's just too much of a burden, so we want to get out of it. What keeps you going? I guess, um, you know, being being content I, and grateful for what I do have. I do, I do think that at the end of the day, like, as bad as things are, there's always something to be grateful for. Um, I think gratitude's important to have because we could be, or I, you know, at least for me, I could be in a worse situation. You know, at least I have the ability to do things like read on these things and understand. I've got such a, a, you know, a privileged background of having this education and the opportunities I've had in my life. So why not use that and um, do what I can, you know, to, to talk to other people and, and educate them. And um, I guess that gives me hope and makes me feel like I'm doing something and I have purpose and direction and um, that keeps me going. Um, mm, nice. Yeah. So as humans, we make lots of mistakes, but we do some good things too. Mm. Any particular good things that you like to celebrate, jump up and down and go, wow, we did that? Yeah, I mean, we, we do, we have. And I mean, we've made huge leaps with, I think, recently getting more awareness about the environmental impacts that we're having. And you're seeing more, more companies now trying to at least do the sustainable thing. Um, you know, when you go and buy chocolate now, you can actually read on the back that, that it's from sustainable um, plantations and, um, you know, sustainable palm oil, although that's questionable whether that actually is sustainable, but at least those things are coming up now and 
you know, I, I imagine, I remember like uh, five years even ago going to the supermarket and not seeing any of that on on packaging. Very difficult to even find out whether something has been sustainably sourced or where it's made or how. And a lot of that's coming up now on the labeling of things. Um, um, so I think that's really important and that's actually becoming more and more of a thing. And it's, uh, I see it as a positive. Uh, I also see it as a positive with um, the the movement for, I guess, plant-based diets. Um, as a vegetarian, I, 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 I'm trying to go vegan, uh, although that is difficult for me. Um, but I do think it's probably the be- the better thing to do simply because um, from an environmental point of view, um, if you want to reduce your carbon footprint, it really would be, it would make sense to, to stop eating meat and to stop uh, consuming the products from uh, animals. And it's not an alien word anymore. No, veganism. it's not an alien, yeah. exactly. Um, and I, I really think that is a positive thing because like that's going to have huge impacts if more and more people start to change their diet to that. Um, so... I'm actually really impressed with the fact that we've even got the technology now to produce plant-based meats and make them actually really, um, I guess, nice mm. and tasty and um, nutritional uh, for people as well. So that's good. Uh, again, this kind of applies to like Western countries. I mean, I'm not sure what that's like in, in developing countries, but um, the, the technology is there and that's good. And so I'm, I'm very positive about that too. And it's it's good that kids are seeing this, and that's the one thing I said this in the last on the, the first podcast. Mm. Actually, um, the thing I'm most optimistic about uh, are the young kids, yes, and the teenagers, yeah, and yeah. the this broader awareness of the repercussions of all your different actions, exactly, yeah, is great, yeah. As there it's is there. more awareness, yeah, and perhaps you know if that generation has that attitude, then going forward we have a chance of being able to probably fix some of these mistakes made by the previous generations. So um, there's true. hope. There's hope. I just think we should get them all out of schools. I mean, the teenagers yeah. are great. S- yeah. Teachers are great. Schools? Eh, yes. Yeah, that's so a much. whole topic. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do that next time. So I feel like we've scratched the surface. Really big topics. Yeah. Any one of which could be a whole series of podcasts. It could. The time has come. So do you have any closing words I guess I would like to say that, you know, as as much as we've talked about things that seemingly are very depressing or negative in some form, like you you could look at it that way. You could say this is overwhelming and kind of scary and um, sad, (laughs) but I don't think they are because it's good to be critical. And I think my parting words would be never stop questioning things, but never feel like it's, you know, doomsday, kind of the, the be all end all. Like it's important to be optimistic yet critical, you know, realizing that this can be improved, this can be fixed. Just question whether it's been done the way that it should be. In other words, don't panic yet. <laughs> well, Anita Diamond, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. I've I enjoyed it immensely. As have I. Thank you. <laughs>